Hello and welcome to the Politics Home podcast. I'm your host for the week, Matt Foster, and I'm delighted to be joined as ever by Politics Home editor Kevin Schofield. Hello, Matt. And uh, I'm also joined by Anastasia Zavaruk, who heads up Politics Home's central lobby team. Warm welcome to you, AZ. Thanks for having me back. It felt very briefly like um, Brexit retreated into the background this week as EU talks rumbled on and Westminster was gripped by a host of other grim stories. The Tories are once again battling claims that they're failing to root out Islamophobic members, while Labour's century-old Jewish affiliate discussed plans to sever ties with the party over its handling of anti-Semitism, and the Equality and Human Rights watchdog launched an investigation into the party. Meanwhile, another major issue of national importance descended into a proxy war over the Tory leadership, as the Cabinet squared off over police funding amid a surge in violent crime. But of course, we're contractually bound to talk about Brexit until the end of time. So <laughs> let's start with the latest developments. Kevin, uh, Stephen Barclay, the Brexit Secretary, and the Attorney General, Geoffrey yeah. Cox, were dispatched to uh, Brussels this week for fresh talks with the EU on the Northern Ireland Backstop, um, what can they be uh, shouting about after that triumphant visit? Well, thankfully this segment shouldn't take too long because uh, they, they came back uh, pretty much empty-handed. I mean, no one's even trying to put a gloss on it. They're not even trying to pretend that any real progress was made. It, it sounds as though they went there, made some demands, the EU said forget it, and then they came home again. And that's where we are. I mean, Victory. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Um so we've got this vote. I mean, number 10 were insisting yesterday the meaningful vote on the deal will definitely happen on Tuesday. Of course, they said that before and pushed it back, but we're really, really up against up against it now since we're supposed to leave on March 29th. So she's not really got much room for manoeuvre. So I guess, um, yeah, it's going to go ahead next Tuesday and all the signs are that, barring a dramatic change of heart by an awful lot of Tory Brexiteers, um, it will get defeated again. So to be clear, does it look like we're, we're going to get a second vote on exactly the same thing MPs rejected before? I mean, I dare say they'll try and dress it up in some way. They'll come up with some new language. I mean, there's, there's talk of Theresa May going to Brussels this weekend, so it sounds a little bit choreographed that she will agree something on the Irish backstop so she can say that you know they've managed to wring some concessions out of Brussels. But it doesn't sound like it'll be anything particularly meaningful. So, yeah, I mean, as I say, they're locked into this vote on Tuesday. Um, it sounds as though it will be pretty much the same deal as was uh, voted on in January, and that was defeated by 230 votes. So, I mean, it was always going to be difficult to turn that magnitude of a defeat around, um, even if she had managed to get some significant changes to the withdrawal agreement. But given that thus far anyway, and we're really, really up against it now, in terms of the, the time scale, given that thus far they've not achieved any meaningful concessions, then it doesn't sound as if it'll be anything different and the result will be pretty much the same. Of course, trying to get changes to the backstop was a, a key part or, or kind of the main part of um, getting Tory Brexiteers to back her deal. Um, AZ, Theresa May's also offered a few olive branches to Labour MPs this week. She announced a stronger towns fund for struggling constituencies and um, a fresh promise to safeguard workers' rights after Brexit. Is there any sign that either of those two things have worked in convincing Labour MPs? Yeah, unfortunately for her, they were not particularly effective olive branches and or bribes, as they've been labelled. Um, ultimately, when it comes to the Stronger Towns Fund, uh, Labour MPs were insulted, and they just kind of accused her of trying to buy their votes. 
Um, and to be fair to them, when you kind of look at the ultimate sum, it's 1.6 billion for English towns. That is, I think, less than 10 pounds per person in the north of England. And, and that's over how? Is it six years? As seven well? years. Seven years. Yeah, actually. and it's less than eight pounds per person in the Midlands. So it's not really the kind of deal that they'd be looking for. Um, and actually, it might have made it harder for her because some MPs who were looking to support her deal in some way, shape, or form, like Lisa Nandy said, that her deal isn't for sale. So that's not really a resounding yes. And as well, as, as you got to remember as well, this comes after years and years and years of austerity and local authority spending cuts, you know? So this doesn't even begin to make up for the money that these areas have lost since the Tories came to power in 2010. So, you know, it, I mean... I think to call it a bribe is it's pretty accurate, really. Yeah, and then when it comes to the workers' rights guarantee, mm. I mean, the Prime Minister basically said that she's going to give uh, MPs the right to vote on whether or not they want to enshrine EU directives on workers' rights. And um, no one's impressed with this. And GMB's General Secretary said that it's essentially swapping strong legal protections for unenforceable assurances. They want to see the UK automatically keeping up with European workers' rights, and this just isn't giving that to them. And also, as well, that we have a convention in this country that no parliament can bind the hands of another parliament. So who's to say that, you know, after the next election, a right-wing government comes in and says, right, we're out of the EU, let's take this opportunity to slash workers' rights and rip up red tape and all that type of stuff. So, you know, this is just a pledge by this government for now, but another government can come in in the future and change it all. So, you know, again, um, it's difficult to see how, how that is going to win over. Labour MPs. So we've got unhappy Labour MPs, unhappy Brexiteers, an unhappy EU, and a vote looming next week. Um, J- Jeremy Corbyn made a bit of a, uh, a play this week on on Brexit. He raised a few eyebrows by breaking bread with a couple of Tory backbenchers to discuss what they're calling the Common Market 2.0 plan. This is to stay inside the European Economic Area, kind of Norway-style soft Brexit. Um, Put simply, kind of, what's what's he playing at there? Well, I think this shows that, that, that Jeremy is desperately trying to avoid a second referendum, despite that being now official Labour policy. You know, he's, he's he said all the right things in terms of if there's an amendment comes forward on a second referendum, we'll support it. But ultimately, what Jeremy really wants is for the for the UK to leave the EU, um, and is. You know, as um, as economically beneficial way as possible. So, you know, he's in favour of a soft Brexit, but he's still in favour of Brexit. Um, and I can understand the political reasons for that. An awful lot of Labour voters voted for Brexit, so it's very difficult to then turn round to them and say we're going to have another referendum. That's going to obviously annoy a lot of Labour voters. So, um, but by doing this, and it is a surprise. I mean, Jeremy throughout his career has not been really known um, for sitting down with Conservative MPs, but sitting down with politicians who he is um, um, opposed to in other, in other areas. So it was quite a significant move yesterday. And, you know, if the vote gets voted down next week and then if MPs vote to extend Article 50, everything's in play, you know. So who's to say that it ultimately might not get a very, very soft type of Brexit, which, you know, might not seem all that different from the arrangement that we've got at the moment. You heard Philip Hammond was on the radio this morning warning to the Brexiteers, look, you vote down this deal next week, you know, we're in uncharted territory, and he was basically saying you will get a soft Brexit, which is not what the Brexiteers want. So, um, yeah, it's quite a smart play, I think, by, by Jeremy. All right, he's going to annoy the pro-referendum um, 
branch of his party, although a lot of them have actually left to join the <laughs> independent group, so he doesn't really have to worry about them anymore. Um, but yeah, I mean, it looks as though they will, eventually we'll have to come to some kind of consensus to get a majority in Parliament. And, you know, um, I think Jeremy might as well uh, try and claim some kind of credit if indeed we end up in a Norway-style situation. Do you think that his willingness to sit down with Conservative MPs is a result of all those other M- MPs leaving his party? Perhaps, yeah. I think that might might have something to do with it. I mean, they've been fairly consistent Labour in that, you know, they've been calling for a permanent customs union, you know, which is much softer than what the government is offering. So I guess it's a, it's a progression of where Labour's been for the last little while. They're definitely moving in a, in a softer direction. Um, but yeah, he's obviously come under a lot of pressure from his own side um, on on Brexit in terms of, as you say, MPs leaving. Um, but yeah, and I think it was a bit of a surprise yesterday, but it might turn out to be quite a smart move. Just point out, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when uh, Labour MPs were disciplined, possibly Labour front benches were disciplined for backing a, a Norway-style You Brexit. are old. <laughs> you are old. You're much older than you appear. <laughs> Yeah, that, those days have gone. Yeah, and, and, and to be fair, on the Tory benches as well, you know, it's an absolute free-for-all. People can vote however way they want and they're not going to get punished. If you're on the front bench, you know, in the old days, you used to, if you voted against the, the whip, you, you got sacked or had to resign. But, oh, I think I remember that, yeah. Yeah, well, way, way back in, I don't know, 2017. Um, but that doesn't happen anymore. Dominating the domestic agenda this week has been the government's response or the lack of it to a rise in knife crime. Um, The latest stats show that knife-related homicides are now at their highest level since 1946, and there has been a renewed focus on this issue following a spate of deaths in recent days. Um, Anastasia, the the Prime Minister came out uh, earlier this week and gave um, a response to the the latest deaths, um, which struck some people as a bit tin-eared. What did she say? Yeah, the Prime Minister essentially said that there was no direct correlation between certain crimes and police numbers. And she went on to say that this issue requires a cross-government approach and it's not just about the police, uh, which upset a lot of people. Uh, notably, the Police Federation responded by accusing her of being delusional and denying that there's a link between pol- uh, policing numbers and knife crime. And that seemed to resonate with a lot of people. Kevin, what then went on at Cabinet? Yeah, so Sajid Javid, the Home Secretary, you know, safe to say he's, he's no great friend of, of the Prime Minister, he's admitted as much himself, um, used uh, Cabinet to make a plea for more money for, um, for police, uh, which is obviously his remit. Um, and he's basically saying, look, there's clearly a link between uh, rising crime and cuts in police numbers. You need to give me more money so we can get more police on the streets to tackle this problem. Um, and Philip Hammond then hits back in cabinet as well, saying, "Well, look, I've given you enough money. You should be spending it more wisely." So obviously, there's a massive bit of tension there. Sajid Javid had a, a summit with police chiefs yesterday and came out afterwards again saying there needs to be more money for um, for frontline officers. And then Philip Hammond was on the radio this morning again saying, "Well, look, actually." More or less saying the police, have, they are one, they're getting more money, he says. They've already got plenty of money. They need to allocate their, their resources. He says it's like any other organisation. If you've got a problem one part of your organisation, you take money from another area and put it in that part in order to solve the problem. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, Philip Hammond, again, he is accused often of politically having a bit of a tenure, and I think this is another example of it. You know, the politically smart thing to do, if you can find the money, is to come out and say, well, actually, we're going to allocate so many million for a knife crime fund, which would get you great headlines, and, you know, even if at the end of the day it's a relatively small amount of money, you get the political benefit from it, but that's not how Philip Hammond works. Would it be deeply cynical of me to suggest that um, Sajid Javid coming out very publicly and backing police chiefs was something to do with his own leadership ambitions. <laughs> It'd be deeply cynical, but also incredibly accurate. I mean, everything... I think I tweeted about something else he did a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember what it was. It was, it was the, the jihadi bride, basically, mm. wanting mm. to take a passport over. You know, everything that Sajid Javid does now has to be seen through the prism of the fact he is desperate to be the next Prime Minister. And this type of thing, you know, more money for police, tough on crime... As well as it being politically smart, it's also um, going to play very, very well with Tory grassroots, who are the ones who will decide who succeeds Theresa May. Yeah, and it's it's essentially a really great soundbite. And I do have some empathy for Theresa May, because her argument's a bit more complex. She's saying there's many societal issues Mm -hmm. that kind of contribute to these issues, um, to to the knife crime rates, and she's trying to make a more complex, in-depth argument that doesn't kind of boil down nicely into... X equals Y equals Z. So I think he's kind of winning on this. I think Jeremy Corbyn's winning on this issue. I think she essentially kind of gave him a gift with this one. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn gets to look tough on crime. Jeremy Corbyn can very clearly place the blame at her feet. This isn't just about her being prime minister, but it's also about who she was as uh, home secretary. Um, And essentially, even her own argument that there are deeper societal issues at play here allows him to go back into the, well, what about austerity cuts and the horrible impact that's had on our society's line? And when you watched PMQs, that was essentially the exchange. He kind of said, you can't keep our community safe on the cheap. And her only response was, well, we had to do it because of what Labour did 10 years ago, which really is just a desperate move at this point. Yeah. I just, I'm, I'm reminded of a politician, God, I can't remember his name now, who said, um, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. I seem to remember oh, that being that really, really politically successful but yeah his name escapes me but I think I seem to remember it did it worked out quite quite well for him uh, another grim issue that kind of burst into the spotlight this week was claims that the Tory party is failing to root out Islamophobia. Um, former Conservative co-chair Baroness Farsi repeated her warning she's been warning the party for a long time that uh, they have a real problem with institutional Islamophobia and aren't doing enough to tackle anti-Muslim abuse. Kevin, what are the kind of big cases that have brought this back into the spotlight this week? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, our, our very own uh, reporter, John Johnson, uh, got a great story uh, earlier this week, uh, which helped to sort of kick the whole thing off, I think, by um, discovering this um, former Tory candidate stood in a by-election in, in Harlow and was subsequently suspended from the party um, for posting Islamophobic messages on social media. Um, but then it dis- John discovered that he's actually chosen again as a candidate for the local elections in May. So this was a guy, as I say, been suspended for Islamophobia and served his time in the Tories' eyes and was again put up as a Tory candidate. So went to the Tories and the whole thing kicked off and ultimately the guy ended up resigning from the party and won't be standing as a candidate anymore. But you know, had that not been publicised by, by us, by the media... 
you know, he'd, he'd have been standing as a candidate quite happily in May. And there are other examples. I think BuzzFeed had a very similar case about a, a councillor who had who had been suspended and then allowed back into the party for pretty much the, the same thing. So the Tories, you know, panicking, um, announced a couple of days ago that they were suspending 14 members for Islamophobia. Um, but, I mean, Saeed Avastri has been going on about this for months and months and months. We've done stories in the past. Uh, and while the Tories have been rightly criticising Labour for failing to tackle anti-Semitism, they've been turning a blind eye to Islamophobia in their own backyard, you know. So um, so I think it's good that a light has now been shone on it and that action um, has finally, finally been taken. The um, current Tory party chairman, Brandon Lewis, has come under fire for uh, the way the party's dealt with this. He, he wrote to Tory chairs this week, um, reminding them of their duty to tackle the problem. What did he say, AZ? Essentially, not more than that. <laughs> he just kind of trotted out the same old lines about reaffirming his commitment to ensuring discrimination doesn't have a place in the party. But essentially, there was not much more to it than that. How's that gone down with um, Baroness Wozzy? Not terribly well. I mean, she, she just believes that you know that the party is not is not taking this seriously, and I think that the facts bear that out. You know, this is not something that has only just happened in the last couple of weeks, and the Tory party has acted incredibly quickly to stamp it out. I mean, this is this has been going on for a while, and as I say, at the same time as they've been more than happy to um, kick Labour around over anti-Semitism, they've not been sorting out their own backyard, and uh, I'm, I've absolutely no doubt that more cases like this will. Emerge, you know. There's, I mean, Facebook is an incredible resource for journalists. To be fair, in, in this type mm-hmm. of story, because there's so much of this stuff that um, people share and like and add comments to, and it's all just out there. And uh, it's just a question of journalists finding. I've absolutely no doubt that, that more more will come. And unless the Tories get ahead of the story, they're always going to be reacting to it. AZ, do you think that the Tories are kind of in denial about this this problem still, or, or do you think this week might have shifted attitudes a little bit? Well, as Kevin said, I think it's worth listening to people like Baroness Worsey, who says she's been warning about this for years and has been essentially ignored. And their, the Conservative Party's response has been, where there's evidence, we take action, which is fine, but there doesn't seem to be any deeper soul-searching in terms of why these incidents are cropping up, why people are kind of expressing these views. And Baroness Worsey has also been quite critical of the Prime Minister herself and saying that she, she needs to show more leadership and she needs to push it forward. And without a kind of clear display of leadership, it does look like she herself is in denial. And, you know, I don't know, Theresa May seems to have a track record of being in denial about things that are conveniently or inconveniently going to uh, thwart her premiership. So I don't think that Baroness Worsey's message is completely off track on that one. Labour has, of course, had trouble of its own this week um, with the party's 100-year-old Jewish affiliate, the Jewish Labour Movement, holding meetings in Manchester and London to discuss breaking historic links with the party. That, that comes after their uh, parliamentary chair, Luciana Berger, quit the party, joined the independent group and, and said that Labour was now institutionally anti-Semitic. We, we've just had a, a breaking story this morning of the Equality and Human Rights Commission launching an investigation into Labour's handling of anti-Semitism. Kevin, could you, you talk us through what that, that's all about? Yeah, so complaints were made by um, the uh, Jewish Labour movement. They, they presented the EHRC with 
what they said was evidence of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and the, they've been investigating it and um, yeah, kind of rumours bubbling around last night that an announcement was was coming and yeah, they sort of said this morning, I can just read it out, uh, spokesman said, having received a number of complaints regarding anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, we believe Labour may have unlawfully discriminated against people because of their ethnicity and religious beliefs. Our concerns are sufficient for us to consider using our statutory enforcement powers a set out in our enforcement policy. We are now engaging with the Labour Party to give them an opportunity to respond. I mean, I mean, this is just the, the last thing that Labour needed right now. Um, it's been a, a week, another week, another two weeks, really, of of uh, non-stop anti-Semitism allegations and a bit like Labour, uh, the Tories with Islamophobia, and they're just constantly reacting and firefighting to stuff rather than getting properly a, a, a grip of it. I mean, there was a slight boost, I suppose, for Jeremy Corbyn last night when the, the JLM, the Jewish Labour, Labour Movement, um, on a show of hands at these meetings in London and Manchester, uh, decided to stay with, uh, stay affiliated to the Labour Party, but a proper ballot of all members will take place in April to act, actually make the final decision. But it looks as though, for now anyway, they're deciding to stay on board rather than leaving. So that's good news. I mean, that would have been a terrible look for Labour, the JLM is the longest-standing affiliate to the Labour Party. I mean, um, so if they were to go, it would be really, really shameful, I think. But, um, but yeah, and then this EHRC thing breaks it breaks this morning. So uh, yeah, again, it's just Labour just seem to be um, just reeling from blow after blow when it comes to anti-Semitism. There's also been a lot of scrutiny this week of Labour's complaints processes and and the way it. You know, institutionally deals with anti-Semitism. We were told that Lord Faulkner, um, former flatmate of Tony Blair, former Attorney General, was supposed to be taking on a job at Labour HQ to oversee its handling of anti-Semitism. W- what's happened there this week? Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's another curious one. So Jenny Formby wrote to Tom Watson last Friday a really angry letter because Tom Watson had sought to get involved in the anti-Semitism complaints process and she wrote back saying he had absolutely no right to do that it was inappropriate uh, and in this rather lengthy letter she said we have asked Lord Faulkner and he has agreed to oversee our processes on uh, handling anti-Semitism complaints and you know he's a highly respected QC former cabinet minister etc etc so let's just let him go on with his job then it broke on Saturday that actually he hadn't agreed despite what she said in this letter that he was still in discussions about the terms of reference basically how much freedom he'll have to carry out the investigation as he sees fit. Uh, and he's still not made up his mind. He said he'll do so, I think, by the end of this week. I mean, I think the chances are he probably still will take it, but it's by no means impossible that he might turn around and say, actually, you know what, I'm not getting the freedom that I want. He wants to see every email, even emails that have been deleted. He wants to see absolutely everything that's gone on so he can absolutely get a handle on how anti-Semitism cases are, are um, dealt with. Uh, and if he was to pull out, it would be one, hugely embarrassing for Labour, given that Jenny Formby had said he was definitely doing it, and Jeremy Corbyn has, Jeremy Corbyn has said he is likely to do it. Um, but also it would just be another um, damning indictment of Labour's handling of anti-Semitism. If you know, a Labour peer can't feel confident enough to agree to take on a role examining the process, um, if he feels he's going to be hindered in some way by party officials, then that's obviously going to look really, really bad. And again... The Jewish community are just going to look at it, I think, and just just shake their heads. Is it, does it feel a bit like we're kind of now in a battle to see which party is worse at dealing with racism? Yeah, yeah. I don't think either of them get gold stars for how they've kind of dealt with the issues in their own parties. 
Um, I, I mean, kind of examining both of the reactions, I guess some credit goes to some chunks of labor for trying to do a little bit more soul searching and try to ask some difficult questions. And I guess with the Conservative Party, at least that they haven't called it a witch hunt or saying that the media is just using this as a stick to bash them with. But yeah, neither of them really have responded resoundingly well. And it's really a shame because, to, to be fair, political racism is on the rise globally. And um, this is not just a UK issue, but I do think that the UK has a chance now to show the world how to deal with these issues and how to tackle them and how to make sure that they don't come up again. And um, it will require some strong leadership, both by Jeremy Corbyn and by Theresa May to do that. And I don't know if they're exactly up for the job. Um, however, it is also not just about you know tackling racism, but also tackling trolls. I think trolls is a real issue mm, for both mm. of the parties, and uh, they don't seem to fully grasp how to deal with that. Uh, as Kevin mentioned, you know, these things are just going to crop up again and again with social media, and they have to kind of figure out how to weed these people out, and it's really an essential issue. Of course, we also saw a man charged with assault this week for throwing an, an egg at Jeremy Corbyn mm. and uh, we we saw Angela Rayner, a Labour frontbencher, reveal that she'd had to fit a, a panic button in her house uh, over the abuse she'd received from somebody she said was a, a Jeremy Corbyn supporter. Does it feel like everybody just needs to, to calm down a little bit? Well, yeah, I suppose easier said than done. I mean, there, there are um, strong feelings in the country. I think social media has played a huge part in it. I think... Um, both in allowing people to air unsavoury views and also engage in really, really um, angry uh, rhetoric online. Um, but I think it becomes like a, a vicious circle. You know, I'm not saying that social media makes people turn out like that, but it's given them a platform and then they just seem to get more and more wound up and things just spiral out of control. And that's how you end up with, you know, in the very worst case, Joe Cox being murdered, did you see? You get Jeremy Corbyn being assaulted with an egg, um, and you get yeah, what you said about Angela Rayner. I mean, it's just um, it's just endless right now. You know, there, there doesn't seem to be much positivity in the country, and certainly not in our politics. And I think it's really sad because I remember when I first came here five years ago, the first thing that struck me when I went to Westminster was how lax the security was. And I'm saying that in a positive way, as in I saw MPs meeting with their constituents without bodyguards surrounding them. You know, people felt like they could speak with MPs and there wasn't like a physical threat. And unfortunately, I mean, the rate that this is going is going to create a little bit more of a barrier in your democratic process. Hello, it's Matt here with a message from Politics Home's central lobby team. Are you looking to engage with the most influential people in UK politics and ensure your message resonates with politicians, policymakers and national press? You can do so by becoming a Politics Home member. Politics Home members have the opportunity to publish interviews, op-eds and press releases, which are promoted across our site, email bulletins and social media, and managed by our team of consultants. To see how Politics Home can help your organisation engage with parliamentarians, or, if you're an MP or peer who'd like to write an article for Politics Home, please drop us an email at centrallobby, all one word, centrallobby at politicshome.com. Thanks. We've had a few questions from our listeners uh, again, guys. Um, thank you for sending them in. Keep them coming. Uh, Penny C.S. Andrews asks, um, will anything ever get the numbers to get through the House of Commons? That's a very good question. I, I, I think something has to 
I think ultimately we will agree a position, a consensus. I mean, I say we will agree, there'll be a majority. I don't think there'll be a, a situation where everyone, the whole parliament agrees with a position, but there will be a majority eventually. Assuming that the deal gets voted down next week, I think the only way it goes is a softer Brexit. And I think that um, is probably where we're headed. I don't see there being another referendum, but I may well be wrong. I don't see there being another election. I may well be wrong there as well, but I think probably eventually there'll be a majority, albeit maybe a slim one, for a softer a softer Brexit. But where that leaves the parties afterwards, once the dust settles, is anyone's guess. You know, they'll be split from top to bottom, probably. Guys, I know you love talking about tariffs, so there's a <laughs> tariff-related question for you. Yes. Um, Kishan Sadani asks... Uh, so this is actually in response... There was, there was a story doing the rounds yesterday that... Um, Liam Fox was planning a massive cut to Britain's trade tariffs if uh, we leave the EU without a deal. Um, Kishan asks, what is the logic behind doing that and what would it mean for um, industries like steel? Well, the logic, I guess, is to bring down prices in this country. So you would, you would pay much less for imported goods, cheaper things in the shops that have come from abroad. The downside is that, obviously, it would be an absolute hammer blow for producers in this country because all of a sudden British products would be much more expensive and farmers in particular would be absolutely furious because, you know, we'd be getting flooded with um, cheap lamb from New Zealand and beef from Argentina or America and uh, all of a sudden the same products produced in this country would become much more expensive in comparison. So, um, yeah, that's why Michael Gove has been pushing back so hard against it. Um, just to say that, that Liam Fox confirmed yesterday that um, the Cabinet has signed off a plan for tariffs after Brexit, um, just that nobody's going to find out what it is until right up until the last moment. Oh, so it's, it, it, it's sitting there, businesses have have no idea what oh, might happen good. in a, in a yeah, few weeks' time. It's just about that the, the, the companies don't like certainty, yeah. because <laughs> they'd be really angry otherwise. Just time now, guys, for the weirdest story of the week. Um, Kevin, what have you gone for? Well, I've actually gone for one, right, it's just come in literally in the last five minutes. So Geoffrey Cox, who we mentioned earlier, um, is, uh, you know, it's it's no understatement to say that he, you know, has the Prime Minister's fate in his hands almost. And if he he comes back with some kind of deal and says, you know, this is great, MPs must vote for this, a legally binding change to the backstop, you know, the deal could pass Mm. and she'd be saved, you know. But if he doesn't, then she's in deep water. Anyway... This deal that he comes back with has been called, in some quarters, Coxie's Codpiece, because it's, you know, a fig leaf. It's a protection for the Prime Minister. Anyway, so he's on his feet. I know it's a horrible image, Geoffrey Cox and a cod, I think piece. I know what our, our image for the podcast is going to be. So, <laughs> so he's on his feet in the, ch- in the House of Commons chamber at the moment taking questions. In a and he's, and he's, he's thankful he's not wearing a codpiece. As, as far as I know, anyway, he's not wearing a codpiece. He says, uh, it has become known as Coxie's Codpiece. And it is my job to ensure everything within it is in full working order. And that is in Hansard forever. <laughs> oh, yeah. dear. You know, God. we're okay. only three weeks away from a no-deal Brexit, but at least we can have jokes about Geoffrey Cox's pants. Please, God, no. AC, <laughs> hey, so have you got anything to top that? You know what? I was actually thinking I didn't have a weird story of the week, but then I just realised it's been a long week. 
Was this the week that the failing, grailing New York Times piece came out? Yes. 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 Of so that was my favorite story of the week, that he became an internationally recognized failure. <laughs> like, that is so cool. Dev- Good the, for him. Devoted like a whole page yes. and a massive yes. picture of Chris Grayling in yeah, the New York Times. Yeah, and they call him failing grailing. That's how he got introduced to the United States of America. So He's gone epic. global. Yeah. He's gone global Britain in action. Yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he is the face of Brexit. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Right, well, I'm afraid that um, is... Oh, wait, oh, oh. no, I don't have weird stories, but I have good news stories of the week. Go on. Okay. One, Luciana Berger had her little baby. Great. And happy, healthy, great, awesome. And we have a new journalist and reporter. I don't know if she's been introduced to the podcast audience yet, but Anita. That's, that's great. She'll hopefully be on the pod in the next few weeks. Um, Once she goes through the intense podcast training, which we've all been through. Yes. yes before yes, we're yes, allowed yeah. to unleash mm. your thoughts. Yeah. On an unsuspecting world. Or Jeffrey Cox vocal lessons and all that. And yeah. I can just also say, and another good news, the last time Anastasia did the podcast, which was two or three weeks ago, it was the most downloaded one we've ever had. Yeah. So, uh, mean, so listen, thanks to everyone for downloading. Spread the word. Things are going well. And uh, please do keep listening. On that note, guys, we will uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Maybe leave us a review if you like what you've heard. Don't leave a review if you didn't like it. Absolutely. Uh, Until next week, have a good one. Try not to project hell vomit (laughs) for the next half hour. (laughs)